Okay, thanks Ricardo. Well, good evening everyone. Let me let me open us in prayer and then we can we can start. Oh Father, thank you for uh, just your kindness to us. Thank you for bringing everyone here safely. That's here in person, especially with the load shedding, the traffic. I uh, do pray that you would you would just be with all of us, Father, and meet with us by your spirit, teach us as we study Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, these uh, different books, Lord, and uh, especially Esther, very different. Uh, may we learn what you want us to know, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to, as I said, do Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So we are, we are now at the end of the historical books. So remember... Um, the the uh, the five books of Moses, the Torah, the law, books of instruction, and then the twelve books of uh, history, the historical books, and so that gives us sort of the history of Israel from Joshua all the way through to the post-exilic community. So let me. Yes, after the exile. So post uh, Ezra and Nehemiah deal and Esther deal with the post exilic community. So that's after the exile into Babylon. So um, remember some dates. So and that can sound boring, but it help, it'll help you a lot in your reading of Scripture just to have some dates to hang things on, to know something of a timeline. So we, we said 930 B.C. Anyone remember what happened then? 930 B.C.? David Green, uh, Judges to Kings. It's the, the, the kingdom is divided. So after the reign of Solomon, so Solomon... David is about 1,010 to 970, and then Solomon is 970 to 930, and that's when the kingdom is divided. Jeroboam in the north, that's Israel. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon in the south, Judah and Jerusalem, and then the next important date is 722 BC. That is when the Assyrians, Israel falls under the Assyrian Empire, okay? Under Shalmaneser. The next date is, well, really important one is 586. That's the fall of Jerusalem, that's the fall of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar. Under Nebuchadnezzar. That's the exile. Okay? And then, remember that Chronicles ends with the decree of Cyrus. So, that is uh, 538 BC. 539, Cyrus, the Medo-Persian Empire, defeats the Babylonian Empire, becomes the new superpower. Okay, stop me at any, any time if anything is unclear. Um, so Cyrus uh, conquers Babylon in 539. 538, he issues a decree 
to all the nations, but that uh, he was a was a very clever politician. So the the the. His subjects, the different nationalities, he said, you can go back and you can rebuild your temples. Okay? And so he said to the Jews, you can go back and rebuild your temple in Jerusalem. Okay? So, um, Have you completely missed Daniel? No. So Daniel is under the prophets. Okay? Oh, okay. So we're going to go through next, next week, Lord willing, and we'll start with the wisdom literature. That backs up into the Babylonian era again. The wisdom literature no, uh, is the f- five books. Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, yeah. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So we're going we're gonna to look at the, start looking at wisdom literature. Then we'll get to the five major prophets. Okay. And then the 12 minor prophets. And that's where, so... That's why it's so confusing, the Old Testament. Yeah, so that's why they do the historic and then they go back into... And then then we're going to be dropping the prophets in, <laughs> parachuting them into the timeline. Oh. Now, then you'll say, oh, okay, yeah, that's during the exile. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's during this period. That's during that period. Okay. okay. So uh, that's why the timeline is important and the historic historical uh, books are important. And then when we get to the prophets... Now, hopefully, it'll make more sense when they are prophesying to which community at what time. Many of them are predicting this fall and warning Israel or warning, uh, well, sorry, warning Israel or warning Judah. Um, And then others are Haggai and Zechariah are in the post-exilic period um, prophesying to the post-exilic community. Can I just ask a question? Yes. Cyrus was not a Jew, right? No. But the assumption is that he worked, he worshipped God as the true God in the sense that he acknowledged that his power and his wealth came from God. So, so the question is, Cyrus seems to be a true believer. So when you read Isaiah 45, 44 and 45, it talks about... We can turn there quickly, just so you can see what, what Julian is saying. Um, yeah, uh, 44 and 45. So, um, so chapter 44, Isaiah 44. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Verse 1 of chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped, etc. So Isaiah here is prophesying hundreds of years before Cyrus is even born prophesying about this man Cyrus who will come and deliver God's people and rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, so it's a remarkable prophecy. That's why uh, liberal scholars try and date Isaiah much later. They say it's impossible. It couldn't be a prophecy. It must have been written later. But he names him by name. He names him by name. And he says, now that language is very strong language. And you'll see when Cyrus does talk. So if you go to... 
um, Ezra chapter 1. Verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Chapter 2, uh, sorry, verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, notice Lord is in capitals, what is that? That's it, yeah. So if, when it's all in capitals, it's God's covenant name, Jehovah, Yahweh. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house. So what Julian is saying, it seems as though Cyrus is a true believer. You know, he's saying to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of heaven. However, it's doubtful because we know that he sent all the other nations back to rebuild their temples. So it seems that he's more a politician who knows how to keep the peace by saying, your God has given me power. Yeah, you can go and rebuild the temple. And then he would say to the next group, your and God. I'm saying Lord in capital, and it's put it in capitals, yeah? Then you must have a respect or, a, or an acknowledgement of God being God. It's almost like Saul. Otherwise you would have put a little L. No, no, I mean, because he would, he would know and he would know how to acknowledge their God. Okay. I'm not saying it's impossible that we won't see him in heaven. I just, from what we know of him, it's not, it's unlikely. It seems more that he's a wise leader who knows how to keep the peace. So he, he uh, allows each na- nation to rebuild and to worship the way they want to worship. And he acknowledges their gods. Remember, they were... It was only the Jews who were monotheistic. Remember we, I think we did it here, we said there's monotheism, there's henotheism, and polytheism. So, uh, what is polytheism? Many gods. Uh, henotheism is interesting because henotheism is saying we only have one God. But it's not a denial that there are other gods. So many of the nations at the time were henotheistic. So it's saying, you know, our, our, our ethnic God is Baal. Okay, that's the God we worship. But we know the Israelites have their God and those guys have their God. They, would, they didn't deny that those, they all had their own gods and that they existed. They just said we... So, yeah, they're polytheistic, but they were, they were not saying, not like Hindus who say, you know, we worship all these gods. They were saying, we have our one God. For us, there is one God. But they did not deny that there were other gods. Whereas monotheism, Judaism comes along and of course the God of Israel says no. I'm the only true and living God. There are no other gods. Um, so so for, for someone like Cyrus, he would have had his own God. I think they worship Marduk. Yeah, Marduk. The, um, so uh, he, he would have had his God, but he would have acknowledged the Israelites have their God, so-and-so has their God, and he, would, he, he shows respect and therefore... Um, 
is a wise politician, how to keep peace, you know, how, you know, if you wrote a book, how to keep peace in your empire sort of thing, <laughs> that would be, so I, I don't, it, it, it is interesting language, but I, but he may be, but I, I don't, I'm not, I'm the not. Messiah calls him God's shepherd, then there must be. Uh, yes, but remember that all governments are called the God's ministers, Romans 13. So every government is, is God's minister, is God's servant. But we don't say all governments are believers. So, um, okay. So, so, Michael, in terms of uh, the, uh, what's the second one? Enotheism. Enotheism. Right, the idea of acknowledging other gods. Where do you, where do we draw the line as Christians? Because I mean, in the Bible, there's the language of you know God of gods, right? Uh, or rather, God is above other gods. So would I be right in saying that that's that's more um, trying explaining that there is one true God essentially, and whatever else is false, but it's not necessarily the same as what that implies, which is the idea that we we have it, you know, we have our own God, who is it? Yes. But then there are others as well. It's it's saying that the, their gods are false gods, right? And that we do acknowledge that behind those false gods are real demons. Okay. But they are they they're not Ultimate. they're not God. They are created beings created by God. Right. Um, new Age would be Enotheism. This New Age thing of Christianity. Many Christians say all religions are worshiping God. Yeah, you know, many Christians are functionally actually henotheistic, right. because they sort of you know all all roads lead to to God ultimately. We. Right. We, 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 we worship Jesus and we think this is the best way but you know for that person and that person it, it's you know so um, okay so we see that chapter 1 uh, begins with the same way Chronic, Second Chronicles ends with the decree of Cyrus so that's 538 BC the decree goes forth that they can return and um they return, and um, we have lists. There's a lot of lists. Ezra and Nehemiah, remember, in, we have two books, but in, in the, the Hebrew Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, it's one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay. Um, yeah, the Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. So um, they, they go together. Uh, there are a lot of lists. So it's a very it's a, it's an interesting type of literature because there's sort of stories but also edicts and decrees and lists. So it's almost like a legal a lot of legal stuff as well. Um, but there's a list there of all the things that they're able to return with. Verse 9 and this was the number of them 30 basins of gold, 1000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, etc. So a people returning or people going to Israel with lots of gold and silver, what does that remind you of? Egypt. The Exodus, yeah. Coming out of Egypt, remember they, they ask for all the gold and silver and they're given it, okay, and they leave. So here again, we see God's people leaving with gold and silver. And this first, this first uh, return uh, is, there's a list there, chapter 2. You can go through that. It's got all the names and the numbers from each group. And um, if you look at verse 64, 
the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. So altogether, about 50,000 people returned to Israel, to, to Judah, to Jerusalem. Out of the three million that left Egypt. Um, yeah, that's, that's we, we don't know the, the figures. Um, remember, we spoke about sometimes in Scripture the numbers are more symbolic. Um, and at the time, that was common. So, it's, it's, we don't know if it was three million because that's an, a massive amount. We don't know cities from the ancient world sort of being okay. uh, near that size. I mean, even now, there's what, eight million Jews, I think, in the world. So, it's not, you know, it would be strange if, you know, it's small, small country, Israel. Um, so, but 50,000 is not a lot compared to, you know, what they were. It's a minority. It's a small group of people. Mm. They, survivors. Yeah, survivors. It's a remnant. Um, it's what's left. Uh, and that's the idea with Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the post-exilic community, because when we get to the, the prophets, especially Isaiah, he prophesies, you're going to go into exile, but God will deliver you. But when they come back, it's not all that you hoped it would be, you know. You think, well, we are delivered now, we're going to come back, and it's going to be great. The but is from glory. That's right. It's broken. They're, they're a minority. They're weak. Um, they're sinful. So that hasn't changed. Their hearts have not changed. So it pushes us, because Isaiah makes these glorious prophecies. Uh, and so it's pushing us to say, well... There must be something more to come. And, and of course we know it's, it's Christ. Okay. okay, so they return. They start to rebuild. Chapter 3, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Verse 2, then arose Yeshua, the son of Josedak, which is the name of Jesus. So here we have a shadow. Um, with the fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shilti, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. So it's a descendant of David. So again, the, the hope of the Davidic line still continuing. And they build the altar. This is in 536. So they start rebuilding the temple. 536, they rebuild the altar. Then there's opposition. Opposition arises to them rebuilding. Um, so they, they do, do the altar and um, they lay the foundation stone and if you read in verse 12 but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy so people couldn't tell the difference between the crying and the, and the rejoicing so the, obviously the older generation are, are remember the glory, the former glory, and they're, they're weeping. The youngsters are, you know, it's a new beginning and they're full of joy. But then chapter 4 we see adversaries arise. And um, so there are other nations that have sort of moved into the neighborhood. And um, 
they, they, they first try and infiltrate. They say, hey, we also worship God. Can we help you rebuild? And, um, but uh, they see through it. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, uh, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So they, they say, No, you're not going to. So then... There is a new king at Artaxerxes, verse 7, and they write a letter to him. It's very interesting as you read that we have, we have the words from these letters that they wrote. So they, um, they say, um, verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are, re- they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. And they go on like that. And uh, the king goes and checks their claims because they say, you know, the Jews have always caused trouble. Jerusalem's always been a problematic city. He goes and checks the records and he sees, yeah, you're right. There have been a lot of problems from this area. And so he says, yeah, they're not allowed to, they're not allowed to carry on rebuilding. So they're stopped from rebuilding. And they're actually stopped for 16 years. They only start rebuilding again in 520 BC. Okay. If you look at the next chapter, when the prophets, the Lord has to send prophets. Verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they come. um, And... Verse 2, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Again, the guys come and say, you know, who, who said you can rebuild? Verse 5, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So they write a letter to Darius, and... Um, and uh, Darius goes back and looks at the, the records and says, hey, no, Cyrus says you can rebuild. You have permission to rebuild. And so the temple is uh, finished. Sorry, it doesn't, it's not finished in 520. They start rebuilding in 525. 16 or 15, it's finished. So it takes a while. Now, what's important about this uh, for us is with rebuilding the temple and when you read the prophets about rebuilding the temple and giving money to support it, you'll often hear New Testament, or you'll hear pastors preach and say, guys, we've got a building program. You see, they gave money to the temple. We need, we need money for the, the church building. Is that a correct analogy? What's... Sorry? <laughs> so isn't the temple not within us we are the temple yes. so there's no it's God who rebuilt us personally there's no physical temple that has to be rebuilt in that's right so we're not looking for a temple in Jerusalem the temple is that's what Jesus said Jesus claimed to be the temple he said destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again so Jesus is saying, uh, and, and we've said this already, the temple was a shadow, a type, 
that was a picture of the meeting place with God, but it pointed beyond to Christ. Christ is the meeting place with God. You want to know God. Remember what Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but through me. That's why, why as Christians, um, we're not bigots, we're, we're not arrogant. We're saying what Jesus said. God said the only way to him is through Jesus. It's not all roads lead to God. Um, and, and it makes sense because only Jesus is the one who atones for sins. Uh, there is no other atonement for sin. All other religions are based on good works, uh, which does not pay for your sin. Only Christ pays for our sin. So Jesus is the temple, and then we're part of his body as believers. So that's why we are also called the temple. We are called living stones. We are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, the Holy Spirit lives within us. So... If you're teaching from Ezra and Nehemiah, the application or the Haggai, Zechariah, Chronicles, the application is not, guys, here's the bank account for the building fund. The application is, are you building the body of Christ? Are you evangelizing to draw people in? Are you edifying? Are you bearing burdens? Are you walking a road with people? Are you loving? Are you the fruit of the Spirit? That builds God's kingdom. Okay. Um, so now, of course, a practical thing is a building. Okay. And it's just a wise thing. And that can be a way that one sacrifices to build God's kingdom. But that's not the application. It's not, it's uh, ungodly to say, see how they gave money to build the temple or see how they, I mean, when we get to the wall in Nehemiah, they're actually physically building the wall. So we can't say, okay, guys, Saturday, we're building the church. Make sure you come with your overalls. Uh, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Uh, the church I grew up in, the guy, the, the, my dad and others did that. They basically built the building. But that's not the application. Um, any questions, comments on that? Does that make sense? Okay, so... That you do out of servants or out of service, not being manipulated. That's right. Uh, by twisting the words of the Bible in order to get to manipulate people into doing that's something. That's right. Um, uh, and and so much of the Old Testament gets manipulated, especially for money. Yeah. To get to to give, you must give, you must give, and it's 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 wrong. Quickly. Yes. No. So, um, and I'm not sure if you're going to touch on this maybe later on, so and we can move on, but. So then what should the finances be used for by the church? Okay. So, so um, uh, when, we, when we do come to the, the New Testament, uh, first of all, we don't find a tithe in the New Testament. So we don't find a percentage. So remember the tithes. I think we did. We did we do this three tithes. I don't know if we did do it, but there were three tithes for the for the Israelites. I'm okay to spend time on this because these these are short books and, and it's an important topic. There were three tithes. Uh, so a tithe means ten percent. Okay. So there were uh, there was. Uh, two yearly tithes, so that's 20% of your income. And then there was a third tithe over, spread over three years. So basically, you had to give 23 and a third 
20% of your income every year. And they went to different things. They went to um, the priests. And remember, we said it's a theocracy. So it was like your taxes because it was a nation. Okay? Um, it was to support the priests. It was to care for the poor. Um, the, these were the, the tithes that God commanded Israel. So it wasn't that God just said to Israel, give 10%. There was different tithes. So, so they ended up giving more like closer to 25% of their, their income. Um, when we come to the New Testament, because there's no longer a nation, a theocracy, the church is not a, you know, uh, a nation. We're not, you know, South Africa is a Christian nation or something like that. There's no such thing. It's the church, the people of God in all nations. Um, what we find is that we are told to give generously and joyfully. So Paul says that, and he will then say certain things. He'll say, a labor, you must give. If, you are, if, if uh, pastor teachers are feeding you, you must pay for that. So he says, uh, you can't just receive and not pay for it. <coughs> now, so, so that's the primary thing is to support those in ministry. So, First um, Corinthians nine. No, second, if the pastor's staff, they're not going to be able to teach God's word anyway. So if they're going to be weathered by the weather, they're going to. So I mean, even the Old Testament, the the Levites didn't even get land. That's they right. They were given food through the sacrifices. They were given portions. They were of supported. The sacrifices as yeah. food. So that just moves on into. It shouldn't have to be said, but it's, yeah. So he, he says there, you know, he says, um, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. So he takes a, an Old Testament uh, civil law, mm. and we spoke about the different categories, of uh, feeding an ox that was crushing the grain. So you could muzzle it so it didn't eat any of it. And the law said you're not allowed to do that. If the ox is working for you, it's allowed to take some of that food. And so he says it's the same for those who, who minister who labor in preaching and teaching. So it's obviously not for lazy, you know, it's not like, it must be those who study God's word and labor in God's word and teach God's word. And then you give towards the support of those in, in the local church. The other is to care for the poor. So we have the deacons who, who um, uh, look for needs, if, if there are any needs, but it's not just... Um, and our deacons are, are very good. It, it, it's not just, you know, it's sort of that teach a man to fish. Yeah. That. So what our deacons will do is they will say there's a case of need. They will draw alongside that person. They will find out, okay, what's your income? What are your expenses? Um, and, and, and they've done this with, with several people. It's been amazing to see the transformation and helped. Mm -hmm. And then, and we help in practical ways. Food. Um, we help other churches, like during the, the storms, the, the floods in KZN, and during the, the rioting, when um, so, we help other. Remember, because Paul also says to the the Greek churches, um, when I come there, I want you to set aside money because we need to get money back to the Jerusalem church because there was a famine. So we also use it to help other churches. Uh, one of the reasons visions for planting heritage in northern suburbs was that we would be a, a wealthier church that can help poorer churches and we have been by God's grace been able to do that um, 
And then, of course, there's, there's practical day-to-day expenses. Um, it's just a reality we need a building in this world where we, where we are. You know, if you're in a village, maybe under a tree is fine. And so, you know, it's different. It's not, you must have a building, but um, pe- people won't come if you don't have cover or shelter. Um, we, we, we have transport to fit students. Those are all ways, and so we also look at okay, using money to to evangelize, to reach others, to disciple others, to, um, uh, yeah, to buy resources to disciple God's people. So all this of those is a, that one story in the New Testament was uh, I think when the Holy Spirit landed and they had tongues of fire and all that. Pentecost, yeah. And then, uh, Pentecost, and that uh, church, there was a story of where they all brought their money together. And shared it uh, um, evenly amongst everyone, so that everyone had food, everyone had shelter, everyone. So everyone was on the level. So nobody went without. Yes. So there's people that are poor. Then everyone that had, they they brought all their money and then spread it out evenly. Yeah. So so yes. Not that, uh, that ever happened today, but that's yes. what happened in the New Testament. Yeah, I, I wouldn't push the I wouldn't push that yeah. that that story because it's 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 just saying those who had extra land they sold it and gave and so there was no lack because remember that it's a transitional period the moment someone became a Christian they were kicked out of the temple now the Jews had a very sophisticated sort of welfare system that's why one of the first problems is the the widows aren't being looked after and so that's where they where they set up deacons. So there was this need. Now, obviously, if all Christians sold all their possessions, eventually we'll all be beggars. See what I'm saying? We, oh, didn't that husband and wife get their dropstone dead because they, they sold their land and they only gave a portion? And no, not because they only gave a portion. Because remember what Peter said, because they lied about it. Peter says... They actually stole from God. Peter, no, no, it's because they lied. They, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter says, it was yours. You could do with it whatever you wanted. Uh, so God is not against private property and what we do with our money. Um, it's because they lied. They said we're giving all of it. They were pretending. They were pretending. And so, so it's, it's not um, arguing for a... There shouldn't be lack, though, amongst the people of God. Nobody, no Christian should go to bed. No Christian in, in, in our church, in any sphere, should go to bed hungry or naked. In this environment... now. If there's a total collapse of the economy and we're all destitute, that's a different thing. There's not really much one can do. But at least at the moment, it would be, it would be such an indictment if someone at Heritage, for example, went without food as a Christian who loves the Lord and is a member of the church. That would be horrific. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, sorry. <laughs> um, if... So, okay, why was that, I may have missed it, we went over the laws, but why was that law of um, the three tithes uh, implemented in the Old Testament? Oh, because, oh, not carried over. Yeah. Because, remember, it's, so in the New Testament, um, the, the, uh, those ceremonial laws and those civil laws are no longer binding on the church. Mm, okay. Because we're not a civil, we're not a nation. Um, although there's principles, as I said, don't muzzle the ox, is now applied to caring for pastors. 
uh, we we don't have circumcision. All of those things were symbolic. We don't sacrifice animals because Christ has come. So now it's not. So we mustn't think. Oh, thank goodness! Now in the new covenant, I don't have to give anything. The principle is is probably to be more generous. Ideally, um, if one is able to. So it's more just like the teaching, or it's the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. Yes. So okay. so it's okay. it's rather to be. You don't get the impression at all that there's this idea that now don't worry, you don't have to give. It's mm-hmm. it's there. So but it now always necessarily have to be ten percent. No. Uh, there's it's, no. It's, it's a about, good starting it's point. It's a good yeah. There's no but there's, there's no. There's no, there's no, it's, that's the thing about Christianity in the new covenant. That's where, where it's interesting because it's like with everything, our heart, we're legal. We're all legalists by nature. Everyone, you know, when you counsel people who are going out, they're like, well, how far can we go? See, people want to know what can we do? What can't we do? But you see, it's missing them. It's the heart. How much must I give? No, you you see, so Christianity is not... It's, it's, the God wants the heart to be changed. Um, you know, it's the same, you know, when people yeah, do about modesty. It's about and, great gratitude. You are... Yeah, you, yeah. You, you give in an offering. Uh, it's a physical offering. But it's thanking God for what He's given you. Yeah, yeah. As a, as pay, like, you get your salary and you're thanking God for that salary for the month. He's giving you your job. Yeah. He's giving you... Uh, everything in your life, and that little bit that you give back to the church is just a small uh, a physical show of your gratitude to mm. God, and that's why God says He looks at your heart when you give, yeah. not at how much you okay. give. Like uh, there was that story with the the rich guy uh, gave and gave a whole big bundle yes. uh, offering to the church in the temple, and the, the beggar threw two cents or something. I think it was the lady, two, yeah, it's a lady. It was all yeah. she had, yeah. and Jesus said. That lady, uh, yes. Uh, so the little bit she gave, she gave everything she had, and yeah. And so uh, we'll look at that passage. Yeah, I think it's no. saying something else. That right. one, yeah. Oh, but okay. but but the principle, what you're saying, is right. Yeah, but it's it's the heart. The yeah, heart was in a very different place. To yeah, but but the par- that that account is actually, I think, uh, um, is wrong. That's all the money she had left in the world. Remember, that's what the story. God would never say. To a widow, especially, mm. give all your money. Mm. It was the Pharisees who did that. The Lord even says that you creep into widows' homes, and you take advantage of them, mm. which is the same as the prosperity preachers today. Mm. Right. So that woman, she had no more money. She gave everything. It's it's right after that the Lord Jesus declares, "Not one stone will be left upon another." He declares judgment on that system. So that lady because could. She gave. Not it's not her fault. It's the system yeah. that had right. had produced that in her that that um, that she had to give that she felt. She so we were never to say to someone who 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 has no money, well, you must still tithe. Mm. We would never say that. If you there's wisdom, like if you you mm. there's there's different God's law is is for our good. It's it's gracious. But we'll, let's let's uh, yeah. let's move on now. So we'll get to that in the in the new in the in the gospels. Okay, so the temple's finished. Um, chapter 7, then Ezra actually appears. So that's it. Let me just say as well, we don't know who wrote these exactly, but, but Ezra appears chapter 7, much later. Um, he is in Babylon. 
He went up from Babylonia in 458 BC. Okay, so now we're... we're, we're um, remember, the temple is finished in 515. Okay, so we're, what, 68, 73 years later. This is now the second return. The first return was in... Anyone remember? 538. Yeah, Cyrus. Second return is 458. And then there's a fourth return under Nehemiah in uh, 444 or 45. Okay, that's the third return of exiles. This is a long time afterwards. So you can see that the Jews stayed in, in Babylon for a long time. Um, and we'll see that with Esther. Esther. Oh, no, that's second and third. It's still the same group. It's little dribs and drabs are still coming. So under, under the exile, they're pretty much all taken. Only, only the, according to Jeremiah, only the rubbish is left behind. Okay. Uh, the reason I say it is because they thought, they thought we were the good guys. We, we were left behind. We must be the ones that God loves. And Jeremiah says, no. You're the rubbish. You've been left behind. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, so you know, basically all the Jews have been exiled into Babylon in that area. So only 50,000 return in the first. So there's still lots of Jews. Um, and, and, you know, with the diasporas, uh, to this day, there's Jewish communities all over the world, aren't there? Um, so they, they, many of them didn't leave. They, they stayed in. In other countries. Okay. So Ezra then is, he's a Jew in Babylon. And, um, but he decides to go back and look at verse 10. Wonderful description here. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, the Torah, and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So wonderful uh, motto of, of a pastor teacher. He doesn't just say, I set my heart to study it and to teach it. But to study it, to do it, and to teach it. So, um, okay, so this is a new section from chapter 7, because in Ezra is introduced. And um, Ezra is going to come and um, uh, try and bring about a... A, a, a moral purity to God's people. Call them back to holiness. Okay? So what we see is they're still sinning. Okay? So you, know, you can take them out of Babylon, but you can't take Babylon out of, out of their hearts. Okay? They're still, and that's true for every human being, unless the Lord changes our, our hearts. Okay? And so he's going to try and um, really set up a spiritual wall so Ezra deals with like a, a metaphorical wall between the people of God and uh, the, the enemies. Nehemiah will deal with the f- actual physical wall, the building of a wall around Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, there's more lists here. Um, one of the main, there are several things that are problematic for this post-exilic community. The one is intermarriage. So the Jews have started to marry uh, pagans, 
So remember that's always uh, throughout. We've spoken about that. Um, so if you look at chapter 9, the, he says, The officials approached me, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. Notice who it is. It's, it's the priests as well and the Levites who are intermarrying with, the, uh, with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race uh, or offspring, holy offspring, has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Okay, so those who should have been leading and been an example and have been different, they were, they were marrying pagans. Okay? Um, and there you see God is looking for for godly offspring. Okay, so um, the, the the God's ordinary plan um, is that um, children will be raised in Christian homes. Okay, now we know there's sin and brokenness and God's providence and um, and but ordinarily that's how. How God works. Verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Okay, so he's, he, it's very... Um, he's really affected by this. Okay. And... Um, okay, so... Um, he then talks about God's grace to them. He says, we, he acknowledges we've done all the sin, but you have, you have been kind to us. Uh, you, have not pun- you have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, verse 13. Um, and then they make a, a covenant that they're going to sort this out. So look at chapter 10, verse 2. says, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So they make this commitment that they're going to get rid of these wives and they meet for quite a few months and eventually there's a list of those who who um, actually do get rid of their wives. And there's a list of Levites and... Um, and the children. Uh, yeah. Now, Isn't so... Crazy? I mean, yeah. <laughs> so... What do they do? Do they like, send them away or do they knock them off? <laughs> well, so they, they, do, they divorced them. No, they would have gone back to their father's homes. So now the question is, okay, but how does that fit with the whole Bible's teaching on divorce? Okay. So um, this, this appears again in Nehemiah because there's overlap. So the two things are intermarriage and then Sabbath breaking. So during this period as well, the Israelites are not resting. They're working all the time. And again, that's an issue that has to be dealt with by, by Nehemiah. Can I ask something quick? Yes. Uh, 
for the intermarriage one, were they not allowed to, or did they not try to maybe convert their wives and their children? Okay, so so yeah, so let's let's. Has it ever happened? Do you know how many people I know that have married Muslim spouses? I know, but like, never I'm just, I'm just saying, it's like, I heard of one. their first choice was to like get rid of them. Well, it can happen, it's just a guarantee, right? No, yeah. Okay, let's, because uh, it's a big topic. So, uh, uh, when it comes to the Bible and divorce, obviously God hates divorce. Uh, that's clear from Scripture, what God has put together. Let no man put asunder. Um, uh, but it is noteworthy that's not saying it can't be put asunder. It's just saying it shouldn't be ordinarily. Okay. So when we go through Scripture, we find that uh, there are three um, uh, adultery is a legitimate reason for divorce, um, abandonment, um, and then under abuse from Exodus 20, which there in that situation it's uh, withholding conjugal rights and not caring, not providing for a spouse. Okay. So, um, okay, Jesus himself says uh, you can divorce for adultery. Okay. Uh, abandonment, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, and the language he uses is straight out of um, uh, divorce certificates from the, from the Greco-Roman world. Uh, that a that a person is free. So if if remember what he says, if the unbelieving. So let's say there's two unbelievers and one is converted. Paul says if the unbeliever is still happy to stay with the believer, then fine. If the unbeliever leaves, then the believer is free, free to remarry. Okay. Uh, and then with the Exodus one, um, if in that situation, but you can expand it, obviously, to... Now, there's a common one now, I think, in it is emotional abuse, but that can sort of become so nebulous. Um, uh, so that, that would be... But that in that situation, it was a husband no longer caring for his wife. He was not providing her with food or um, looking after her at all. And the law said she's allowed to go. Okay. And so... These are the three categories. So, um, otherwise, it's not allowed. So, you can't say, well, we're not in love anymore. So, I'm getting divorced or something like that. Um, uh, at the same time, because there are Christians who argue it's called the permanency view. That there, you can never get divorced as a Christian. Uh, I think that's unbiblical and puts people in a lot of bondage. Um, when you go through scripture, these are the three situations. So what's going on here? Now remember, he's spoken about basically the whole of Israel is doing this. And yet the list is quite short. Remember, there's 50,000 people that have returned. And then there's a list of, you know, I don't know, 18 names or something. So what it seems like when you put Nehemiah, put all of it together, is that these wives were actually committing adultery. They were actually like temple prostitutes. So after they go through all of them um, and you put all of Scripture together, then I would argue that this is not a case of, well, they're unbelievers, we're just going to throw them on the street. 
it was they were unrepentant and continuing in because remember in the pagan worldview sexual immorality is not a is not problematic as problematic um, and especially if it's under the guise of religion so it's I would argue that it's not it's not what it seems straight up front that it's just you know get rid of the unbeliever it was um, when you when you read carefully they were they were refusing to repent and con- they continued in in um, idolatry and sexual immorality okay but certainly the the um, in that situation is to seek to win the spouse and remember paul uh, peter says that especially to wives that you can win your husband you may win your husband without a word okay so um yeah <laughs> Most ladies I know in difficult marriages, it's, there's a lot of words. It's not without a word. So Peter's actually saying, rather show you love Christ instead of mm. nagging a lot, because that's not going to win a man. So, um, but if you are a believer and you choose to marry an unbeliever, certainly at Heritage, that would be a church discipline. You'd be excommunicated because it's a clear command in Scripture. Mm. Um, the the you're not to marry you are to marry in the Lord, okay. But um, if if one as I said one gets saved, um, and the and the unbeliever is willing to stay, then praise the Lord. That person may be one as you show the love of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, uh, Spurgeon had a great example because there was a girl who who um, who in his church. She was a believer, but she had met, and this is fairly common. Again, my, I'm very young, my short life, <laughs> is that often uh, ladies will feel this maybe more because they'll feel I'm getting older and uh, I'm not getting married. And so then the, they, they'll meet someone who's not a believer. And remember, Christian men are not, Remember, God doesn't save the best. He saves the worst people, okay? Wow. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Can I have an amen? Yeah. So, so, Paul says that. Not many mighty, not many noble, but he's chosen the weak and the foolish. So, um and and and, um, and and so so it it yeah just because there's a lot of brokenness and and problems mm. but that's a fallen world and and praise God He's had mercy upon us but it's not it's not always ideal and often it's from broken homes and never been taught how to talk to a woman how to like a million things yeah. okay yeah. so then they'll meet a guy who's like really nice thoughtful etc etc but he's not a believer and Spurgeon said he uses you know he was quite a big guy but he said um, he, he, he said to this lady he was sitting at his desk he said climb up onto my desk and then he said okay pull me up and she couldn't and then he said okay I'll pull you down and of course it was so easy it's always much easier to pull someone down than to pull someone else up yeah. so um, now that's a that's besides the fact God has said no, 
But the wisdom in it is, like Solomon, remember, it was foreign wives that drew his heart away from the Lord. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, it's going to... It, it, so it's not a... It's, it's, it's a foolish thing to do. But I hope that helps to explain a little bit on, on divorce and also on the situation. So, what is abandonment? As if you're saying abuse is not providing, so what's abandonment? Abandonment is leaving. Providing. They just go and then... They duck. They just leave. Um, yeah. They go for a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, it's leaving. So, um, okay. So, uh, Nehemiah then quickly, because we'll look at Esther. Um, uh, and also, because I need to change. No, no, there's, there's load shedding and I've got to synchronize the break and all of those things. Okay, so Nehemiah then, uh, he, he is in uh, Susa, which is also in Babylon. In the, in the empire of Babylon, not the city of Babylon. I think Susa, if I remember correctly, was sort of the winter palace. So just on map again, the Mediterranean Sea. We've got the Lake of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is here. And then over here is Babylon. And then just a bit further is Susa. So that's where he is. And he is um, a cupbearer to the king. Okay. Um, and uh, one of the main themes of Ezra and Nehemiah is also prayer. You'll see frequently they pray. And here in, uh, Nehemiah prays in chapter 1. And because um, uh, he has heard this news of what's happened. One of his friends has come back from Jerusalem. And uh, he says there in verse 3, they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And he weeps over this. And he prays to God. And... Um, Chapter 2, then, he, he's there with the king, and he takes some wine up to give it to the king. And verse 1, it says, Now I, I had not been sad in his presence. Quite something. Uh, he, had, he had ensured that he was not sad. He was never sad in the presence of the king, but this time he couldn't hide it. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. You can see how, you know, there's, there was tremendous insightfulness, okay, uh, uh, in the ancient world. Lots of wisdom literature. It's a good, good description there. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Now look at this. So I prayed to the God of he heaven. So one of the things you find as you go through Nehemiah is you'll find these long formal prayers. And then notice what he does here. He's in the presence of the king and the, the king asks him a question. What are you requesting? So he quickly, obviously in his mind, his heart, prays to God and then answers. So it's a great picture of, of the Christian's prayer life. Okay, Sometimes we think it's only 
you know, I should be praying every morning for half an hour or something, and that's my prayer. But really, throughout the day, we should be just offering. I think that's what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing, that, the, that it's like the telephone is always open, that we're, we're um, just, Lord, keep me safe as I drive. Thank you for keeping me safe through that intersection with the load shedding. Just in our hearts all the time, um, help me find a parking here. I uh, hope this meeting goes well. I hope I get this deal. Um, please look after my family. Please heal my child. You know, it's just it's just a continuous uh, praying. That's that's the idea you get with Nehemiah, as well as the longer formal prayers where we really, you know, bring a case to the Lord or just worship Him. Um, so it's really a beautiful picture. Uh, Nehemiah is then sent back, and he's allowed to go back, and he. The Lord protects him. So one of the things that, one of the themes is, remember, it's a tiny group of people. They're surrounded by enemies. We're going to meet some of these enemies here who try and stop rebuilding the, the wall. Um, the Tobiah and Sanballat. And, and yet, it seems so pathetic. It's, it's, a, it's become such a small little place. It's broken down. It's in ruins. 50,000 people. You know, we're talking about the mighty empires of the world. The Babylonian Empire at this time, we're going to see under Esther, it's Xerxes, the great king from, also known as, as uh, uh, sorry, Ahasuerus, known as Xerxes, the Persian king, who who, who is in, th- in the movie 300, amazingly. Yeah. <laughs> Still acting. Uh, <laughs> So these empires, it's the superpowers of the world. It's like, you know, you know think of this America and China and these superpowers, Russia and uh, the European Union. And then there's like a little island somewhere with 50,000 people. And God is concerned about these people. And God is not like, oh man, I should be part of the big nations. And he's concerned about his people. And he uses the superpowers of the world to bring about his, his plan. And really, it's a picture of the church. Because what is the church to the world? Nothing. We're not on the news. We're only on the news when there's some cult that they like to call, you know. Right. Um, what's it? Westboro Baptists and those guys, you know. And then they're like, oh, yeah, that's what Christians are like. But so the, so we're never... We're, we're, but... But then it's normally some fruitcake who said something. It's not like a wise Christian who's, who's stood up graciously for the truth. It's someone who's been volatile. Um, so we're, 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 not, we're not the movers and shakers. We're not prominent. And yet the God of the universe is concerned about us. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah get across. And God uses even the political powers, the great empires, the emperors, um, Xerxes, and um, who is it at this time? It's uh, Artaxerxes and Cyrus we've already seen. So Proverbs says that the, the, the heart of the king is like a canal. The Lord turns it wherever he wants. Okay? So we mustn't be anxious over the politics God is in control. 
and he will use politicians and emperors and all of these for the good of his people. Okay. So uh, he goes back and he starts rebuilding the wall, but as I said, there's opposition. So remember, as the, the image is for us, we're building God's kingdom. We must expect opposition. Okay. You'll know that, I'm sure. You know, try to be holy, try to evangelize, try to, to encourage others. There's going to be opposition, your own heart, um, etc., etc. There's going to be opposition. So these guys come and they create opposition. But Nehemiah is also a, um, a, uh, a very good organizer. Uh, and he's very generous. Um, he, he supports... Um, if you look at verse 17 of chapter 5, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men every day. Verse 18, Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. Um, so he, he used his wealth for good. Okay? So he was wealthy. But he used it for, for good. Nehemiah. Nehemiah, yeah. Because he's, he comes back as, as like the, the governor. Okay. Um, there's the list of returned exiles there. The wall is finished. It took them 52 days. Um, there's this wonderful picture of how they built. He manages to organize as they're... Um, again, you see just some practical. That he's a very, he's a very, very gifted administrator and leader. Um, so let's just say that's the wall around Jerusalem it's all broken he just said wherever your house is around Jerusalem you focus on that part because remember there were enemies trying to stop them so he just said you focus on that part and he manages to get the, the very wealthy the elites to also do physical work um, and they all start working and you have this picture and that's uh, Spurgeon uses it Spurgeon had a magazine it was his sermons that was issued, I think, every week, called The Sword and the Trowel. Everyone know what a trowel is? Trowel. Trowel. Like a hoe or a shovel. When you're building and you put the That's cement. That's it. <laughs> See, the guy's putting cement on, and then it's like a little, little spade sort of thing. Mm. It's a trowel. Okay. So that's what happens. They were, they, were, they were building with one hand, and in the other hand, they had a sword. So it's a great picture of the Christian life, that we're building God's kingdom, but we're also fighting sin and false teaching. Uh, and so they, they work like that, with a sword in one hand and building on the other hand, sword in a trowel. Um, and they managed to finish the whole wall in 52 days. So much, mm. It's so amazing that the, the neighbor, the, the, those around say, you know, God must be with them. Okay? Mm. And so he manages to restore that, the wall. They also start reading the law again. Chapter 8, verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. That's sort of the only place where we get someone standing and, and on a wooden platform reading God's word and explaining it. Later on we'll see they, they would sit and do that. And they, um, they start to keep the feasts again. Just in like the order of things, because uh, it always says they go like obviously they leave 
or the Basi, whatever, then they go back and then they remember like the law and stuff. Uh, chronologically, how is that happening? So is that, uh, we're still chronological at this point from Genesis? Or, because I mean, how's the, yeah. how's the Bible order? Because I, mm. I don't believe that, well, well, at least my impression is that the Bible wasn't like ordered how it was written or how it was received or at the time that, you know, people received. So how are they, like, what are the timestamps? Yes. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, don't read, you know, Genesis to Malachi as though it's chronological. Mm-hmm. The historical books, those 12, seek to be chronological. Okay, but then we have something like Ruth. We, that's in the period of the judges, but where exactly, you know, we're not entirely sure. Um, but Ezra and Nehemiah, that is after the, the exile. So we do have, because remember, we've, we've read there in the reign of in the third year of this king and that king. So we have a lot of anchors. that we can say, okay, that's that date. We know 538 is the decree of Cyrus. Uh, we know it's at 458 is when Ezra comes. We know 444, 445 is when Nehemiah comes because of that. So it's during this period after the exile. So this, at least these books are very, very specific. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So then, sorry, I, m- I might be jumping ahead. Like the New Testament, then obviously now until we get to like, uh, Psalms or like Ecclesiastes or whatever. I mean, where so Psalms, that? Psalms, and that will 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 start all the way back with Moses. Mm-hmm. Psalm ninety is mm-hmm. from Moses, and then we have David mm-hmm. doing most of them over here, and then others we're not sure of. Mm-hmm. But sort of from about four hundred BC to the end, it's quiet. There's nothing happening. No prophets. Mm-hmm. God is quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then uh, Job is very ancient. Um, so Job is before this time? Yes, yes, way. Okay. Yeah. So all of the guys that we're reading about, even from like... Okay. So so that Moses is obviously way before. Yes. Because so, he's the one who wrote Exodus. And, yes. And then Moses is before... Uh, sorry, Abraham is before Moses. Moses then is Israel, the people of God. Then they come into the land. They're under judges first for several hundred years. Then there's King Saul probably about 1050 BC, then David 1010 BC, Solomon 970 BC, 930 BC, the kingdom is divided, 722, northern kingdom goes into exile, 586, southern kingdom, and then the post-exilic community is where we're at now. Mm. Is there like some sort of like chart or timeline or any resource that you yeah, can maybe Yeah, yeah, I'll put, I'll put that on the group. Yeah. Yeah, but that's that's the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. The important thing to note is God has delivered them. They've come back to the land, and yet they're still sinful. They're still Sabbath breakers. They're still intermarrying and sexually immoral. They're still greedy. They're still, but they're still God's people. But we're left. When are things going to come right? Who can make us right? There's a problem with us. Okay. Uh, who can take Babylon out of our hearts? And Isaiah is saying, well, there's a Messiah, there's an anointed one. And he, ironically, is going to have to be crushed. Okay. And so, it points are still, the story still continues. It's not finding resolution. Okay. 
Okay, should we take a break then? Yeah. Okay. All right, people uh, online, um, we're going to take a quick break, and yeah, we'll see you in probably 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, or when load shedding allows us to come back. <laughs> uh, cool. Thanks, guys.